My name is Rich. I'm serving as interim pastor here at Calvary. It's good to be with you again this week. Uh, I felt a little badly for Jim when, uh, when his microphone wasn't working at first, but I wanted to say, you know, Jim, it could have been worse. I once did an entire wedding ceremony with a piece of spinach right here in my teeth. <laughs> and no one told me till picture time. <laughs> uh, I love dedication day. I love when parents come forward and dedicate their children to the Lord. Because in essence, what they're saying is, as a parent, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in him as my Lord and Savior, and what I want more than anything for you, my son, or you, my daughter, is to grow up and know Jesus the same way. It's so important for us, it's so critical for us to know and understand Jesus in all of his fullness. And that's what we're going to look at in the verses we're diving into today. We're, we're three weeks into a study of the book of Colossians. New Testament book of Colossians was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul who was sitting in a Roman prison to the church in Colossae. And the reason he was writing is because their thinking had drifted a little bit. This church was formed when a man named Epaphras came on a missionary journey sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, that he had come, he was, our, he was the Son of God and could be your Savior if you put your faith in him. And many of the people believed that message, took Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and formed this church, this Colossian church. Somewhere along the way, some other thinking started to drift in and get a hold of their minds. They started to think that maybe Jesus wasn't the only God, Maybe there were other gods, other deities, and Jesus was just one of many. This was one of the big reasons Paul wrote this letter and why we have it in front of us. We're going to look at five verses in the first chapter of Colossians, verses 15 through 20, and these five verses remind us who Jesus really is. I'm going to take them one at a time, read the verse, make a couple comments, and move our way right through them as a reminder to us of who Jesus is. Now, I know... Uh, we all come to this room from different places, different experiences, and we might come in a different place with what we think about Jesus. We might come to this room and think, Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, took a punishment that I deserved so that I could be forgiven. I've given him my life, I've asked for his forgiveness, and I follow him all the days of my life. You could be here today saying, I'm not quite sure what I think of Jesus or who he is. Maybe he's a good teacher, or he was a good moral person, or a religious man, like a rabbi or a priest, and you're not quite sure, and you're, you're in a place where you're thinking about it. I would say to you, give that a lot of thought. Pay attention to these verses today because the most, in my opinion, the most important decision you can make in your life is who you think Jesus is. And these verses are going to help point to some of that. So the first one, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, the Son, and when it says the Son, it's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is the first thing this passage says about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. In the Colossian church, while they started to take on other gods, they also made images. They wanted to know what these gods looked like, so they started to make images of these various gods in painting or carvings, in metal, in wood, 
they worshipped deities of nature and fire, the, the god of storms and the god of good fortune, and they started to make images of them so they could see what these gods looked like. So Paul is writing here, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what the one true God looks like, Paul says here, look at Jesus. Now, my quirky mind does a funny thing right here. <laughs> I read this and I think, is the image of the invisible God also invisible? The, the actual literal translation of the word image here is a mirror-like representation, the exact reflection of its source. So if an invisible thing stands in front of a mirror, don't you see invisible back? So what does this mean? Jesus is the image of this God we can't see. It will help us if we look at another verse. Hebrews, uh, a New Testament book, the first chapter of verse 3 says something very similar. It says, the sun, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The words here literally mean when it says that he is the representation of his being, it's not talking about his bodily form. Jesus came in a bodily form. You know, we remember at Christmas time that Jesus was born a baby and he was God's son and he came in a human form and he grew up into a human man, but that's not what this is talking about. When the, the Bible says that Jesus is the image of God, it's not talking about the fleshly image. It says his being, his substance, his nature, his spirit, his character, his essence. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, another New Testament book, it says that Jesus... Being in very nature God took on the role of a servant. And, it goes, and the rest of that passage talks about him coming here to this earth. But that beginning phrase said, Jesus being in very nature God literally means of the same substance. That Jesus and God the Father are of the same substance. They are the same. It's saying to us that Jesus is God in his essence. So when we read Colossians 1.15 and it says the Son is the image of the invisible God, he's not reflecting an invisible image. It's saying that Jesus is the exact representation of God in his essence, in his substance, in his character, in his nature. Jesus reflects and reveals who God is. But sometimes people don't see it. If you're someone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've, I've accepted him into my life, I see in my mind and I believe who he is. I don't understand how, uh, how sometimes people can't see that so clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the fourth verse, it says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What happens to us when we open our mind to the truth of God, when we open our mind to Jesus, when we decide in our mind and in our hearts, that we're going to believe in Jesus. And that's a decision of faith. That's a decision I make that says, I am choosing to believe in Jesus. When I do that, this scripture says a light goes on, a light bulb goes on in my mind, so that I'm in a place where I have understanding that I didn't have before. That when I open my mind to Jesus Christ, and he reveals himself to me, a new understanding comes in, and I can see, not with my eyes. This passage says that up to that point, it's like I have coverings over my spiritual eyes, coverings over my mind. It's like I have a blinder on until I make the choice to say, 
I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to believe he's who he says he is, and I'm going to accept him into my life and heart. I'm going to spend my life trying to learn about him and follow him. And when I make that decision, boom, it's like a light bulb goes on over my head. And from there, greater and greater understanding gets revealed about who Jesus is. It also says, just for clarity, um, I don't know if we can, can we go back to, um, yeah, can we put Colossians 115 back up? We have the capability to jump around there. I love that. Um, this, this verse that I read uh, first says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. I want to make sure we're clear about what that's not saying. It's not saying that Jesus was the first one created. See, the Colossian church was starting to think about Jesus as one more created being, like angels. And like some of us, if we could ascend to godness, we'd all be equal with Jesus. Angels, people, Jesus, the God of fire, the God of the water, all kind of equal because we were all created. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that Jesus was the firstborn over creation. It means he was there before creation. The the Gospel of John in the very first opening verses says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, same words that start our Bible, in the beginning. And if you continue reading that first chapter of John, it reveals who he's talking about is Jesus. It's saying that in the beginning, Jesus was there. When all things were created, Jesus was there. So the Apostle Paul is trying to make sure the Colossian church remembers that Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is the God who does the creating. And it's so important for us who call ourselves followers of Christ to keep that straight and remember, he's the Lord and I'm not. He's the master and I'm not. I am not equal to him. You are not equal to him. Sometimes as Christians, let's be honest, we slide into this thinking where we, we treat Jesus like he's our good buddy. And there's a, there's a great song out there, been out there forever, What a Friend I Have in Jesus. And it's true. He was a good friend to us when he came here, and he gave his life. And he lived his life, um, gave his life, and accepts us and forgives us. There's no better friend than one that would lay down their life for you. But Jesus is not my buddy. He and I are not equal pals. He's lording God. He was here before the creation of the world. He was here way before I was a twinkle in my father's eye. And it's really important for us to remember who Jesus is. Let's go on in uh, Colossians a little bit more. Colossians 1.16 says, this is the next verse from 15. For in Jesus, in him, all things were created. We just talked about that. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It matters also that I believe that Jesus created and Jesus created me. Now, we could be in this room again and have different thoughts about that, different ideas about how life started on this planet. Um, and I'm not, this is not where this uh, message is going. Uh, I just want you to know what I believe and that I think it matters. Uh, I believe that when the Bible says the earth was formless and void and God created it and God gave it order and God separated the, 
the land and the waters, and God brought light and dark, and God put vegetation on this planet, and God put animals on this planet, and then God created Adam and Eve, in, uh, and it's a seven-day period, I believe that's what happened. I believe that's how we ended up on this planet, folks. I, I don't believe that we started by some huge, massive nuclear explosion in the universe that generated life on this planet that has continued to evolve over millions and billions of years. And it matters to me how I think, because if I think that my origins, if I can trace them all the way back, came from an accident, and I am the result of a long line of just a changing evolution of beings, then it really doesn't matter where my life goes, or what it's about, or what I choose, or what I do, or who I'm accountable to, because I'm just part of the change as it's going along. But if I believe that God created everything, that there is a God, and there is order, and he had a plan, and there was intent, and I'm part of his ongoing plan, and he wants to have a relationship with me, and I can know him, and he can know me, it changes everything. Game changer for me. Now I have a Lord and Master. Now I have a hope beyond this life. Now I have God who has revealed himself to me in Jesus Christ because he loves me, and he made me. Psalm 139 says that God knew me when I was in my mother's womb, that when I was in that secret place, he wove my being together, that he knew all the days of my life. Every one of them were written in his book before one of them came to be. That's the God I believe in. I believe when I was still a fetus, God was looking at me in that womb. I believe when I was eight months in the womb, God was still forming me. I believe God brought me into the light of day, and he's been walking with me every day of my life until I was 18 years old and realized he was there and that Jesus was real. And I said, God, I will follow you the rest of my life. Jesus, Lord and Master. I think for me, it matters where I came from, and it matters where I'm going under the hand of God. Colossians 1, the next couple of verses. This is verse um, 19 and 20 now. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I skipped down on my iPad. 17 and 18, right? Yeah, you're in the right spot. It says, Jesus is before all things. All things are in him. All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. There's a lot in that. I want to I want to pick that apart a few phrases at a time. He's before all things. That's what I was just saying. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. I want to stop there, Calvary Church, and say, Jesus is the head of this church. We have elders who lead. You have an interim pastor who's here shepherding and helping. We have staff. We have ministry leaders. We have volunteers all of us doing the work of the church together, but who's our head? It's Jesus. It's not a ministry leader. It's not a pastor. It's not an elder. It's not me. It's not who comes next. It's not Peter who was here before me. The head of this church, Calvary Church, is Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, I formed you. I hold you together. I have a plan for you today, and my plan will continue tomorrow and the next day, and what I see in the future is amazing. If Jesus were here, I think he'd be saying that. I think he'd be saying, Calvary Church, remember who I am. 
Submit yourself to my leadership, my lordship. I have good planned for you. I'm your strength. I'm your leader. Follow me. Submit to me. Seek me. I think those are the things he'd be saying. And what's our choice, Calvary Church? What do we have to do? We have to choose to do that. We have to submit ourselves to his kingship, to his lordship, and say, all right, we'll do whatever you ask us to do. We'll follow you. We'll seek you. Reveal your plan to us. Lead us day by day, and we will trust you. I know we're in this time of transition where we're awaiting God to bring the next full-time senior pastor to us, and his timing will be perfect, and the perfect he bring, person he brings by his hand will be the right person. Where we are right now is day by day, we just submit to God and say, we recognize that we are in your plan, we're in your time, and you are the one in control. If I really embrace that, for me personally, and we really embrace that as a congregation, do you know what disappears? Anxiety, worry, control. Who wants those things anyway, right? When we really submit to Jesus and put our faith in him, we have his peace because he's trustworthy. Me? I'll fail sometimes. Me? I'll make mistakes. Me? I'll make bad decisions. I have a history of them. I've made some good ones. <laughs> but Jesus? Always good ones. Jesus? Never mistakes. Jesus? Always trustworthy. So that's a good word to us as a congregation from this passage today. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. This part, so, this is so amazing. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This really matters to me today uh, because I buried my sister yesterday, my oldest sister. There are five of us. I'm four in the line of five. My sister died a few months back, and we had to wait to get all the family together to be able to have a memorial service, so we gathered at Riverside Cemetery in Shelton next to a big hole in the ground. Um, they asked me if I would do the graveside ceremony, and um, I looked at that hole in the ground, and we were gathered together, and I said, this is a moment in time we all try to avoid, right? Who wants to be standing next to a hole in the ground where we're going to put someone we knew and loved and cover her with dirt? And we try to also avoid that hole in the ground because we don't like to think that we'll all, we're all going to get a turn in that. You don't like to think that. I, I don't like to think about that usually. But that hole in the ground is waiting for every one of us. That's the reality. Nobody gets a pass on that. Nobody. I read the passage graveside from 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. And when he is raised from the dead, if we put our faith in him, we will be raised from the dead too. And people will say, what does the resurrected body look like? And 1 Corinthians 15 says, when you plant something in the ground, a seed or a bulb, and you cover it over with dirt, what grows up out of that is different than what you put in the ground. You don't put a seed in the ground and a seed grows up. I put tomato seeds in the ground. I get a beautiful tomato plant and hopefully beautiful tomatoes out of it. What grows up looks different than what's in the ground. And that passage says that's like us. What goes in the ground is this mortal body. It's this flesh, this flesh that I love so much that I've had for 64 years. It's going to stop working someday. The, Bible calls this perishable. The Bible calls this mortal. Expiration date is stamped on here. I don't know what the date is, but there is one. 
And we don't like to think about it, but I was standing next to that hole in the ground yesterday thinking one of these days they'll be putting me in that. But here's why this verse is so exciting. Because they're not putting the real me in that hole. That's not final for me. That's not the end. They're putting this flesh in there, and it'll deteriorate and go back to dust, the dust of the earth. But the real rich, the real me, the eternal soul and spirit that God knew and loved and created, the real rich, is going to be resurrected with Jesus. It says, and the twinkling of an eye will be changed. You won't be like that thing that was planted in the ground. You're going to be like this new thing, this new body, this resurrected thing. Can you imagine? That passage ends with this. Where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. You don't win in the end, death. Jesus does. Yeah, you can clap for him. That's what Paul is saying here. Oh, how hopeless that would have been yesterday if I was looking at that hole in the ground thinking that's the less I'm saying goodbye to my sister. She made a profession of Christ some years ago. And so for me yesterday, saying goodbye to my sister was not goodbye. It was see you later. See you soon. I'll see you again. So I grieve. I was sad. I cried. Um, But I did it with hope because Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first, so too shall we if we put our faith in him. That's what this simple line means. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might be supreme. All right. Last two verses, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Now, if I were talking baseball, any baseball fans out here? Okay, good. A few of you will get what I'm about to say. If I were talking baseball, and these verses I'm going through were a batting lineup, these two verses would be cleanup. These two verses put the ball over the fence and empty the bases. Paul gave it his best shot right here. These words are incredibly powerful. Let's look at them. It says this about Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus, I'm substituting Jesus' name for the pronoun so we know we keep everybody straight in this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now you can read that and say, wow, why is that so powerful? we got to stop and think about what's being said here. I often read this, this first part of it, and I say, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And I go, yeah, I know, Jesus was fully God and fully man. I get that. He wasn't like half man, half God put together into one whole. He was fully God and fully man. He had to be to reconcile us. He had to be fully God and fully man for the cross to work our reconciliation. That passage says that, but we're going to save that concept till next week because the next few verses talk more about that. I want to end with just this idea that Jesus was fully God. Imagine that. The fullness of God, the entirety of God, in the body of Jesus the man. How is that even possible? How is that even possible to get all of God into the body of a man? We gotta think for a minute about how big is God? How big is God? Well, you know what helped me? I looked up some things to remind me how big our earth is. You know how big this earth is? The diameter, if you could cut right through the center of the earth and get from one side to the other, it's 8,000 miles. 
Walking at a normal pace, it would take you 2,700 hours or 112 days without stopping for a water break to get through the Earth. If you decided to go around on the equator instead, it's 24,901 miles long. It would take you 8,300 hours or 346 days, an entire year of walking without stopping to get around the Earth. This thing is big enough to hold almost 8 billion people. This Earth is massive, isn't it? It's massive. And the Bible says it's God's footstool. That means as big as this Earth is, God could put his foot on it, and he's still bigger. And this Earth, it floats around in a, a solar system. We're part of a solar system. The sun and the other planets are in it. We're not, now we're in like a whole different way to measure. It's 93 million miles from Earth to the sun. 93 million miles. If you got in a car and drove 60 miles an hour nonstop, it would take you 20 years to get there. 20 years. From the Earth to Neptune, which is the furthest planet, it's 3 billion miles. The total length of our solar system is 12 trillion miles. You would never get across that. That's just our solar system. And our solar system hangs in a galaxy called the Milky Way. Scientists have estimated that there are 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. I don't know how they count it. Someone's still counting. That's why they don't know. If there's 100 million or 400 million, someone's 100 million, 100 million, 200 million. When they get the final count, I'll give it to you. They, uh, scientists claim it's about 100,000 light years across. That means if you traveled at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to get across the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is part of the universe. I don't even know what this means, but I read the observable universe. What, how do you observe the universe? The observable universe is 93 billion light years. 93 billion light years, and they're saying there's way more beyond that we can't observe. How big is this universe? Am I stretching your thinking a little bit? Good. Because God is bigger than that. And the fullness of deity resides in the human form of Jesus Christ. How is that even possible? But I believe it, and somehow God did it. And Jesus, this passage says, is the fullness of deity. Here's what it meant to the Colossian church. This is what they started thinking. They started thinking that there were deities all over, and that if you wanted to get the fullness of deity, the completeness of deity, you had to add them all together. If you took all the deities that were out there and you combined them, you would get the fullness of deity. That's what they started to believe. Now, Paul writes to them, mm-mm, fullness of deity is found in one person, Jesus Christ. So why is that important to us? Why is it important for us to believe that the fullness of deity is in Jesus? Well, we want to make sure we have correct thinking about it. We don't want to slide into thinking that Jesus is one of many gods, of course, here at Calvary Church, we believe Jesus is the only God, the one true God, the fullness of God. But I want us to really be careful how we internalize some of that and how that operates. Because I can, with my head, say, yes, Jesus is the fullness of deity, and then go on treating him like he's not. Have you ever done that? I treat Jesus like he's not fully God. And I do it like this. Jesus, I'll submit to you when I'm in church. I'll think about you, and I'll honor you, and I'll pray to you while I'm at church. But when I'm at work, I'm not thinking about you. I'm not sure I want you there. When I'm with my friends, 
Jesus, stay over there. And we don't maybe do it that directly, but we do it kind of by leaving him behind. Or we do this. We start out our, our faith journey with Jesus saying, Jesus, I'll follow you, but then somehow it flips around and we say, Jesus is following me. Hey, Jesus, come along. Help me with this project. Hey, Jesus, come over here. I'm doing this thing, and I want you to help me with it. Hey, Jesus, come along and follow me. Jesus, bless the things I'm doing. Jesus, bless my life. Now I have diminished his deity. I've made myself God. So when I read this passage, I have to say to myself, if I really believe that Jesus is the fullness of deity, do I live like that? Do I treat him like that? Or do I treat him as something less than that? Instead of me being his servant, do I make him mine? Instead of him being my master, do I try to become his? Or do I compartmentalize my life so I only submit to him in certain areas, the ones I'm comfortable with, and there are other areas I really don't want to let him in? If he really is the fullness of deity, and I really want to follow him, then I have to submit to him in fullness in everything. So I would end with this and ask you to think about it. Is there an area in your life that's coming to your mind today where you're, you're thinking, you know what? I really got to let Jesus be the Lord of that. I got to let that worry go. I got to let that control go. I got to let those decisions go. I got to let my behaviors go, my words go. I've got to bring all that under the submission of the one true God. And I, I'm not trying to accuse you. This is not a finger-pointing thing. At any given snapshot portion of your life and mine, there's going to be an area like that where we have to say, ah, I don't know if I'm fully giving Jesus his, his rule in that. And the good thing is we can come to him and say, Jesus, be the Lord of this part of my life. So I'm going to give you a moment to sit with that. Think about that. Close your eyes and, uh, and pray something like this. Uh, Lord, if there's some area in my life, Jesus, where I'm not treating you as God, please show me right now. And if you sincerely ask him that, he'll show you. And I'll give you a moment to deal with that while I call our worship team up to the platform. I believe when we ask the Lord to speak to us and we're sincere about it and we open our ears to hear, we will hear him. So believe. If you're sitting here right now and you're saying, Lord, is there some area in my life that I have not submitted to your Lordship? Please show me. Just stop and be quiet and believe that he will speak to you. He will. And then we turn that around and we make a commitment. We say, Jesus, I'm sorry I haven't been following you in that area of my life. I want to make a commitment right now today to make you the Lord of my life right there because that he is. And we've been singing that before um, the dedications, before I got up, the, some of the first songs we sang were worthy of, of all the things. What is that phrase? Worthy of it all. Worthy of it all, thank you. And Cornerstone. We sang songs about Jesus being Lord and Master. And the, the worship team has planned a song. I heard it for the first time today during the run-through. 
And I sat here and just felt this song wash over me. It felt like a blessing. It was a powerful statement of who Jesus is, but they did it with such a beautiful spirit that I felt like Jesus was breathing on my heart. It's like a benediction. It's a blessing. So I'm going to ask the worship team to sing that song over you. You can sing it with them uh, and make it a blessing to each other as we lift up the name of Jesus.